This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. For some in this community, the only reliable way to access the internet is to come and wait for the bus, pay $5 to take a 35-minute ride to a nearby city, and then log on to Wi-Fi at a business there. Deanna John says the doctor who used to visit Chihuahua once a week said she could no longer see patients here because the internet connection wouldn't let her load her files. Then there's everything that people aren't able to do online. And I think that our people could use more like training and you know everything they could get out of the internet. They're not able to really get it. The CRTC's goal is to connect all Canadians with quality high speed by 2030. This week, a Canadian coalition of consumer advocates, civil society and social justice groups, policy experts, activists and independent ISPs will come together in a national day of action to demand the immediate implementation of federal measures to deliver affordable internet and wireless services in Canada and to put an end to constantly increasing bills. If it feels like the issue of affordable universal internet access in Canada has been going on for decades, that's probably because it has. The very first broadband task force examined the issue nearly 20 years ago, and successive governments, both liberal and conservative, have left behind a long trail of unfulfilled promises. This week's Law Bites podcast brings together three people that bring unique perspectives to the issue. Madeline Redfern was the mayor of Iqaluit, Nunavut for nearly 10 years, and is currently the Chief Operating Officer of Canarctic Inuit Networks. Dr. Mary Cavanaugh is the Director of the School of Information Studies at the University of Ottawa and has been actively engaged in research on consumer issues in the telecom marketplace, including the development of a secret shopper project that served as a model for a CRTC initiative. Matt Stein is the CEO of Distributel Communications, a leading independent ISP, and he's the chair of CNOC, the Competitive Network Operators of Canada. Madeline, Mary, and Matt, along with me, Michael, all joined together for a virtual conversation on the impact of access at the community level, the effect on consumers, the state of competition, and what Canada should be doing about this issue. The National Day of Action takes place the day after this podcast is scheduled to be released. And it seems to me that the very fact that consumer groups, digital policy experts, companies, community organizations, and so many others felt that this was something that was needed really speaks volumes about the mounting frustration that we've seen with affordability and access when it comes to the Internet in Canada. And really, I think the policy failures that now date back decades. So I'm grateful to all of you for joining me on the podcast. I'm hoping that we can have a conversation that really focuses on three issues, the the impact of access at the community level, the, the impact certainly on consumers, this, and the state of competition. And then, of course, I want to kind of bring all of that home by talking a bit about what can be done about that. Why don't we start, though, with the impact on local communities? Madeline, you, you joined us and it took a while just even to be, to be able to join us, given some of the connectivity challenges. Can you start us off with a little bit of a description of access in your community? What's it like? What's the cost, uh, the speeds that you find in competition? And I guess most importantly, what's the impact that it has on the community? 
Well, first of all, we're 100% satellite dependent in Ikawa, which is the capital of Nunavut, as well as the other 24 communities. But there are communities um, in Northwest Territories, one in Yukon, some in the, the northern parts of uh, other provinces like Quebec, Nunatsiavut, and that are also satellite dependent. So it, it's a challenge because there's, without a doubt, latency issues. Uh, it means that, you know, I'm trying to get onto a website. Yesterday, I was trying to fill in a government uh, funding application and trying to use one of their online sort of mapping tools, and I just could not sign on, like for the life of me. It just, and uh, actually, I think I tweeted that uh, uh, for, you know, trying to actually sign on to a webinar the other day, it took me 15 hours to prove that I was not a robot. Because I just it wouldn't <laughs> it wouldn't let the the you know the message or the connections sort of you know uh, be received in time to to prove that. So it's it's also extremely expensive. Um, again, you know my internet bill for the month of January was uh, about a thousand two hundred dollars, which means that I spent you know let's say about $800 in overage charges because we don't have unlimited and every sort of uh, bit of data, you know, it just costs money. And that doesn't include my cable. That does not include my, you know, my, my cell phone. I mean, there's no bundling here. And the, you know, in the past, uh, I would be able to travel to conferences or meetings and I would have my travel paid for, but now, you know, I tend by Zoom and I tried to explain that um, I've got a, you know, a package that is the highest for business and that my overages comes in $100 chunks. You know, when they say, well, you know, they, the people just don't understand. And, and, and it's not like I'm paying $1,200 for like really good connectivity. I'm paying $1,200 for like, you know, sheer frustration day after day where I'm having problems sending emails with attachments. I can't get onto websites. I'm not net Netflixing. I don't even have that luxury. I'm just trying to do day-to-day -day business, as is everyone else in my community. Wow. <laughs> I mean, that, that, those, those numbers, I think, frankly, are stunning for anyone that, that you know, I live in Ottawa. And so uh, that, that sounds more like an annual cost as opposed to a, as opposed to a, a monthly cost. How, how, how is that in any way affordable for the average consumer who's trying to have their kids connect to their schools or to participate, as you say, in, you know, everyday society that's so dependent on connectivity? Well, unfortunately, it means that in some cases, people actually have to choose, you know, to sort of be internet cops and, and limit uh, participation of their family members on the internet. And I've known people to, you know, even try to sort of decide, am I, you know, buying groceries or do I, you know, have some internet? And and that's a really tough call because the internet has, has become such a necessity and, and to be completely disconnected, especially during covid um, you know, it, it's a, it's a horrible sort of scenario to be in for okay. many people. And is there is, is there any competition? I mean, you mentioned that it's all satellite based. Is there a number of providers that at least have some impact in reducing cost, or are you basically left with with a very limited number of provider choices? 
you're you don't have much uh, options uh even some of the packages where you know, one of the companies sort of says well we provide unlimited but then people say well yeah unlimited to virtually non-existent connection is is not very good anyway so you have no real good unfortunately a choice because at the end of the day those same internet service providers are for the most part buying the same satellite service which is just really slow and, and really expensive. So there's not much that can be done when 80 to 90% of those internet service providers are using the same, you know, backhaul provider. Well, okay. So significant competition problems. I, I want to come back to what can be done to improve matters in your community, but um, let's, I'd, I'd love to hear about other communities as well. Matt, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about your ISP and uh, sure. some of the communities that it operates in and, and some of the issues that you've seen. Sure, absolutely. So uh, RISP Distributel, uh, we've partnered with a, a good number of local communities to provide uh, in a rural setting, ultra high speed broadband. Uh, and of course, we also have hundreds of thousands of Canadians that buy our broadband services in urban areas too. But if I, if I put that aside, specifically in some far off places, a uh, great example would be in northern Quebec, where we partnered with the local communities. Uh, there are already 12 up, and we have, I guess, more than 50 other communities in progress right now, where we have uh, various states of, of uh, 12 communities already ha are constructed and are being expanded and so forth, where thousands of Canadians now do have gigabit capable speeds or uh, gig fiber to the home. Uh, and so we've been able to do that in a, a number of places in northern Quebec and now are branching out to other parts of the country as well. And then I, I guess I should say from a, an affordability standpoint, it's uh, obviously a, a very different story than what we just heard. Uh, those are the same prices that we charge in downtown Montreal, as an example. So uh, it's a very, very different state of affairs there. And what's the competition like in some of the in some of the those smaller communities that you try to operate in? Are you so so for example, are 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 you the competition, so to speak, as against some uh, of the larger providers? Well, sort of yes and no. Uh, there there might be uh, say the phone company, the local phone company, but most of those communities have limited, if any, DSL, let alone anything better. Most of those communities don't have cable. Uh, in a sense, we're the only provider there. Uh, certainly, we're the only provider for broadband services, or I'll say modern broadband services. Okay, so so at least there is that, but uh, the competition's still limited. Uh, you know, Madeline's, well, sorry, go well, ahead. I was, sorry. Uh, sorry, I was just going to say it's true. Competition is limited, but we were careful right from the beginning to try to find ways to bring some of the values that competition brings elsewhere to those communities by indexing all of the pricing in all of those communities to a large urban area. That, that we felt was an appropriate proxy. So as I said, in Northern Quebec, all of those communities and all of the pricing in them is indexed to the Montreal area, which is hundreds or even thousands, or, or I'll say nearly a thousand kilometers away, just really far from there kind of thing. Okay, that's, that's, that's good to know. It's interesting to know that the, the, you've been able to keep prices at that level, you know, in communities outside of the the larger urban areas where there is that kind of competition the you know the the impact obviously on consumers is 
is huge when you think of these costs that we just heard about, especially in the north. But uh, the, you know, there's been a lot of concern about the consumer impact for a long time, and it seems to me just about everybody has their own story. In my case, it actually involves my father-in-law just in the last couple of weeks who saw his bill. He's with Rogers. Um, in Ottawa, uh, go up by more than fifty percent from what was a previous uh, one-year deal to a to an inability to get any sort of deal, and the cost just skyrocketed. It took three phone calls continuously with different customer service agents to try to find something that was affordable for someone who lives on a a government pension. So there are real challenges. And, and Mary, you've done some some exceptional work taking a look at some of the consumer-related issues when it comes to telecom. Uh, can you describe a little bit some of the research and, and some of the findings that you that you came up with? Yeah, Michael, but before I uh before I, I get into my work, I just want to know in your in your dad's story, did he uh, threaten to leave um Rogers? Was that part of the way that he got his um, a, a price that worked for him because that's often what we see. That was exactly well. That was it. Was exactly that. It was my father-in-law, and uh, yeah. So and so, what it what it took was the first time was just just a regular call saying, "Is this possible for the bill to have jumped this much?" And the answer was yes. And yeah. uh, they weren't able to come up with anything. And it took several calls, and it was finally on the last call to basically say to say this is a call where we are leaving. Uh, because this is literally not affordable until we were able to come up with something that was still not as good as the prior deal and actually downgraded the internet service uh, in order to do it. But there was really no choice from a cost perspective. And and this and our work, uh, we did work uh, with wireless uh, consumers in 2016-17. The CRTC uh, uh, launched their own research in 2019-20 uh, on uh, wireless also, but internet service and wireless consumers, it's the same kind of story. And it's, it's, um, it's, it's your, your father-in-law's story. It's misleading and aggressive sales practices, misleading information, the things change, the very lack of instability, uh, unpredictability, unreliability. I don't understand the information. I can't get the same story twice from the same company. I can't compare across it, deep, deep, deep inequities. And the inequities come in all kinds of different ways as uh, as you know, the north, north and remote and rural is an inequity that it's at a technical level, at a price level, uh, understanding, um, you know, you had to perhaps help your father-in-law intercede a bit. I don't know if you flexed any of your your uh, muscles from your work in any way, but but every single person is going through this kind of experience one way or another, and we're exhausted. And generally, I, I don't want to say for the ISPs that are, you know, I have I have home internet, it works for me, but I rue the day when something goes wrong because I don't want to have to get into that kind of negotiation. So it's it's deeply inequitable. That's what I and and that's what we found. And unfortunately, the the remedies and the mechanisms that the CRTC is putting into the the the, the language is to empower consumers in the marketplace. Um, I would say is generally not working very well because the same types of problems continue to occur. Yeah, that was certainly. 
my experience and I interceded entirely not not doing any sort of name dropping, just being a customer, yeah. uh, saying that uh, our family spends a lot of money on communication services and we're just trying to help out a family member. Uh, what did what did the how did the CRTC react to some of your research and what kind of steps did they did they put forward, uh, albeit ones that you've just suggested are, are inadequate? Well, we what we were trying to do is to get uh, recognition from the telecoms to put um, documentation and pr- sales practices in place that that were sort of standardized before a consumer, a customer signs the contract. So there's a, there's a lot of uh, procedure after you have signed a deal with a telecom provider via wireless or and now they have an internet code which they've inter- they introduced in 2020 and that followed. CRTC's language following the success of the wireless code, which from our point of view would say was not is not really that successful. Um, so documentation, a critical information summary that you get after you've signed a contract. Well, unfortunately, that doesn't help you c- compare apples and apples uh, across providers. It doesn't help you understand. And the the interests at the at the sales perspective whether you're phoning you're talking to someone on a on the telephone or you're face to face in a kiosk we're mostly doing things online these days is um that you they 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 can't give you the same information and and their interest is is your is a sale and your money and your interest is access and service for money but it's but it's there's a a use I want to use the service I want to buy from you for all of these things and the world is organizing so I have to use it and you want to take my money which is fine but I but the interests are quite different and the the service providers will told us repeatedly and in, in the last hearings that they have practices built in for training and so on but we were unable to verify across in a very small sample actually. Um, that these practices are consistent. So that consistency, language, people for people with disabilities, there are other kinds of needs that they have. It's uh it, it's not very it's not very effective. Yeah, no, I, that, that that certainly I think will resonate with a lot of people. Madeline, can you can you tell me a bit about what the consumer experience is like in the north? You've obviously talked about how it's it's satellite only based, but uh, it sounds like there are significant challenges. And I guess I wonder, are consumers entitled to anything when, you know, essentially when it, if the service doesn't work? Well, you know, it should work. Um, and there are some, you know, technicals, uh, relatively, I think, easy fixes that um, even Northwest Tel and Telesat have acknowledged, you know, could have been done, and now there are plans to do it. And when the recent $49.9 million of federal investment to upgrade our telecommunications did result in faster internet when there's good weather. But the instant that there's, you know, blizzard, rain, fog, the the signal deteriorates, which, you know, just it's, you know, reality is that we live in the conditions where it's not 365 days for 24 hours a day, good weather. So that is, you know, not really acceptable. As I said, um, the experiences, it means that sometimes when you, you know, go to the grocery store or you want to buy gas or get money out of, 
you know, the ATM or bank teller. You literally do not know um, when your card is, is going to work or not work. So, I mean, it affects businesses, it affects the residents uh, to that extent. I, I lived in, oh, I remember in October, 2011, when the satellite went down for 22 hours and the entire Northern part of Canada went black. So there were no telephone calls in and out of the, uh, those Northern regions. The planes were grounded. As I just said, people couldn't do basic business transaction and we're so dependent on paying with debit and credit cards. I don't usually carry cash or even have cash, you know, at my, at my home. So it's, 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 you know, when we say that internet and connectivity is, is a basic necessity, it is. It, when it, you don't have it, everything comes to a complete grinding halt. Um, and that's not good for work productivity for any level of government. It, uh, you know, no one's, I think, quantified what the loss of productivity or the loss of economic development, but it's tremendous. And that divide is just getting bigger and bigger despite some of the historical investments. Um, and we need to be more strategic. And we don't even have a strategy about how we're going to improve it, which I think fundamentally is a problem. Uh, and, you know, having funding programs is not a strategy. Uh, the ISPs or companies competing for that, you know, again, is not a strategy. Um, we are not going to achieve any of the targets or the goals that have the federal government has stated without having national and regional strategies. How are we going to do it? Where? How much? And by when? Speaking of, thanks for that. Speaking of, of strategies, Matt, you've been involved, obviously, with what has been a con almost continuous discussion of how Canada is going to ensure greater competition and address some of these issues. Although I have to say that when Madeline describes the implications and the impact, it's uh, it's dramatic in, in ways that uh, we don't experience necessarily here in Ottawa. But we do experience certainly the cost issues and the competition issues. Uh, can you start us off, I guess, by talking a bit about the issues around competition and pricing? You know, I think there's a public perception that uh, Canadians pay a lot, both for broadband and for wireless services, and the competition remains an issue. Um, is that is that your experience coming at a, a market, coming at it as a marketplace participant? Uh, absolutely. I, I think that there's, there's a number of aspects of competition that we look for here in Canada and that we seek, but uh, it's, you know, I, I could talk a little bit about why it's been on the ropes for so long, but no, you're, you're absolutely right. Even some of the other examples that, that were shared here on the call, uh, consumers, when they go to a competitor, such as the members of CNOC, I mean, you, you asked me here as part of Distributel, but we're part of an industry association called CNOC, and we, um, CNOC is the Competitive Network Operators of Canada. The members of CNOC aren't known for those kinds of things. We are known for uh, frankly, providing a better grade of service, a uh, person that you could talk to when there's a problem, and fair pricing. So those are sort of the things that people have just come to expect from competitors and also innovation too. But it's been a long time that we've been sort of on the ropes due to some of the regulatory challenges we face. I don't know if you'd like me to go into that very much or if that's where you're hoping I'd delve into. Yeah, well, I think it would, it would be useful. I mean, it, I, I don't know if we want to get deep, deep in the weeds, but uh, I think people who pay some attention to these issues know that there has been 
ongoing hearings and almost dialogue at the CRTC. Can you give us a sense of how that has played out and what the impact has been uh, on, on, on CNOC members, let's say, on some of these independent providers? Sure. So uh, that's right. So the independent providers, uh, or sometimes referred to as third-party internet access providers or wholesalers, is a bunch of terms that get floated around, uh, pay for an access. They pay for the last mile. They pay for the connectivity into the home. They still provide the internet service or the phone service or the TV service or what you know what whatnot that goes on top of it. They do all all of the customer relationships and so forth. But they have to pay for that connection throughout your neighborhood into your homes. And that is uh, paid for with a price set by the CRTC. The CRTC sets it, they they mandate or they require the big incumbents to provide that last mile service to the independent provider. And it's a way of ensuring that there is competitive choice, that there are competitors out there that can offer a better grade of service, that can offer different things, that can offer better prices, and so forth and so forth, and and in new innovative services and so forth. The problem is that those prices were set a really long time ago. And those prices have been under review, what seems like forever. They've been under review or under discussion in some way since 2013, and very intensely since 2016. But when the CRTC finally completed a multi-year-long process with thousands of pages of submissions and so forth, in 2019, in the summer of 2019, amazingly, a year and a half plus ago, they changed the prices. They realized that they'd made some grave errors way back when. And they said, listen, th- these prices were wrong. The, li- the um, independent ISPs have been overcharged. The incumbents have to give the money back. And I would say even more importantly, set a new price going forward. And that new price going forward was far less. And one of the things that, in, that the independents are very good at doing is converting the low cost to a low consumer price. So when that happened, a bunch of the independents, my company included, a bunch of independents went out, lowered prices, increased speeds. Like I said, efficiently converted that lower cost into a lower price for Canadians. Unfortunately, uh, through a string of appeals uh, with or within their legal right, but you know, seem, seemingly, uh, in some would say, a, a bit of an abusive process, uh, appealed off in every which direction. Uh, the incumbents have found a way to make that fight over costing take much, much longer, and we're still waiting for final decisions now. The federal court is finished with it, Supreme Court is finished with it, and now we're waiting on the CRTC. And actually, we think the CRTC is getting pretty close to evaluating the decision they made in 2019 and announcing their decision. And then all that's left really is the federal government to not put their hand on the scale again and to uh, just let the CRTC get their work done and lower prices for Canadians. Okay, that's, uh, that's I think, a perfect uh, conclusion to to segue into what comes next and what we ought to do. That's a that's a it's a really helpful summary in terms of where things are at. It's it's I think for many it's been a long uh, a really long road at least in terms of following, which is why I think some people may kind of start tuning out because it just seems that that whole 
regulatory processes filled with appeals to governments and to the courts and then to the CRTC again. And you just never know when there's going to be an end to the road. And it sounds like you may be he- heading there. Um, you talked about what the government can do. I, I'm curious for, to hear from all three of you about what you think governments should be doing and perhaps other others in this process. Uh, why don't we start uh, with you, Madeline? What, what what do you think can be done to improve access? You talked about the need for, for a more strategic approach. What are the, some of the kinds of things that you think we should be doing? Well, if uh, a telecommunications company applies for and receives public subsidies, whether for capital or for service, there should be more uh, transparency. Um, you know, I recognize that we have a similar sort of approach with the Nutrition North program, which subsidized food for communities that are only fly in. And consumers have demanded and actually received, um, you know, adjustments to that program so that at the shelf, we can see what you know the original price would be and what the subsidized price is. We see it in our in our receipts at the till. The government of Canada has service auditors that look at you know the recipients' books one on one to make sure that they actually see that the public funds or the subsidies you know are not just going to bolstering profit of those companies so you know i don't see why we can't do something similar where uh there is a requirement for the companies receiving it you know to prove to the government of canada to prove to the customers or that uh that the subsidies are really bringing down the internet costs and, and making it more affordable there needs to definitely be more transparency and accountability because you know you know year after year we see the you know the large telco telecommunications company boasting 2.5 or 3 billion dollar profits net profits and yet we don't see you know the large telecoms um, expanding their services into rural remote areas or underserved communities uh, they say it's too expensive and yet it is effectively a public utility or public um, uh, necessity, but we've moved away from the utility model in telecommunications to a business model. So right now I'm, you know, working with some business partners to bring fiber into uh, my part of the region and we chose a utility model that makes the internet you know as affordable as possible um, especially since we're seeking federal investment for that um, and so it is a business decision and it is a decision that is being bolstered by you know as i said the government of canada and um there are policy options and i don't think we fully investigated them um and uh, required as i said you know ensuring that there really are proper uh, good return on in, on public investments, which is effectively making the internet as affordable as possible right across the country. Okay. Uh, so, you know, we, we hear so much of these almost uh, check-cutting exercises in terms of government putting money in, but far less in terms of the accountability and the, and the impact that it has in terms of sparking some of the kind of competition and accountability that you're talking about. And that sounds like a really excellent place to start. Uh, Mary, you, you appeared before the CRTC. You've raised a number of possibilities. 
whether at the CRTC or with the CCTS, which is normally yeah. supposed to be there for consumers, what what more can be done so that every, people don't have to enter into these kind of dreaded uh, phone calls that feel a bit like theater where you say, listen, I'm about to cancel unless you come up with a better deal. And it takes that to actually engage in any sort of real conversation. Exactly. I'm so glad that you brought up the uh, the CCTS, the Commissioner for Complaints on Telecom Services, because I think one of the places that's the agent uh, the, the CRTC's delegated authority for mediating um, consumer um, issues with their telecom providers and, and uh, sales practices and misleading information is one of the biggest uh, issues that gets raised. But it's a post-contract, post... The problem has happened. The issue has happened, and that's a whole... Uh, sorry to be, you know, in, in the government process, it's a whole procedure for um, for resolving complaints, I'd like to see something that is more, much, much, much more proactive, both from the CRTC and perhaps the commissioner could be more, the commissioner for complaints, the CCTS, could, could create uh, some uh, strategies and mechanisms that are proactive, that create uh, processes that really give information up front. The other thing we don't find out from the CCTS every year in terms of the complaints, I'd like to know that a lot of the detail about those complaints, are there best practices that could be identified out of the resolution of the complaints that are reported to the CCTS? What can we learn? Again, it's a very, very closed, opaque system. It's very much oriented in federal government process, and it's... <laughs> I, I suggest it's it lacks a street view. It lacks the ordinary everyday person's perspective. And if you start from the perspective of the consumer rather than end with the consumer at the end of the road, the person receiving, if you start with the consumer's needs and start to to build uh, procedures, policies, I don't know what it is, uh, ecosystem, strengthen the ecosystem, which would involve all all the agencies. Um, yeah, it, it needs a lot of work and it needs to start from the consumer's point of view. Yeah, that's a fabulous point. It's, it strikes me that uh, the former chair of the CRTC, Jean-Pierre Blay, uh, emphasized quite a lot in terms of some of the policy decisions that the CRTC took during his time as chair, the, the need to put the consumer at the center of their communication system. And that that kind of applied in a whole series of different areas. They may have had mixed you know, mixed results on certain things, but that was at least the starting point. We have seen, I think, under the current chair, the CRTC drift away from that a little bit. And we don't certainly don't hear nearly as much about the consumer and the consumer the consumer's interests as uh, as we did at least for a few years there. In very uh, practical ways also, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Matt, uh, you mentioned that it, it's it's up to the CRTC to to, to kind of move forward, what, what do you see as the sort of the next steps, both for the, the regulator and, and I suppose for the government as well, which tends to talk a lot about the importance of broadband, but as we've been hearing, uh, the, the results have not been great. Do you mind if I build on something Mary said? Just no, by all means, person. go ahead. Sure. You know, I pardon me for making another pitch for competition, but I'm also going to suggest that in addition to all the other uh, great ways of, of doing the policy work to find uh, what the source of complaints are and how we could address them. Sometimes there also are options that are being done and played out every single day by competitors. And that that's not a pitch that everybody should just switch to a competitor, but 
perhaps there are some principles that have been adopted by competitors pretty widely or pretty broadly that could be brought into more common use. And I'll just cite one example. You know, earlier we were talking about the idea that somebody had to phone and call their call their provider and say, why did my price go up this much? And how can we bring it back down? It took several phone calls and a threat threatening to cancel. Well, I, I'll give you a quick example. One of the CNOC members a couple of years ago made the rule and stated clearly that from that point forward, while they still had a group that was responsible for dealing with cancellation requests, the same offers that were being made available to that group that they could pitch customers on and help customers through and so forth, the same offers must be available to every single rep that answers the phone in the entire company. So you didn't have to get transferred three times to get the right deal and that everybody would be trained to help customers get the right price and so forth. And it may seem like a small thing, but it was so well-regarded and so well-received, many other CNOC members also implemented it. I, I can't say that every single one, I don't know that, but many other ones did as well. And so it's a small change to say that everybody has access to those price points, but you no longer need to hear from the person that you're phoning at the cable company or the phone company, sorry, I can't do any better, but let me hand you off to another group. So it's a small little change. Anyway. Okay. Uh, well, the, the, it's, you know, obviously in competition helps spark, I think, some of that kind of innovation. Uh, and so that becomes absolutely critical. Uh, from a pure policy perspective, why don't you wrap us up with the government, as I say, has focused quite a lot on broadband. They've got government ministers that talk a bit about it. Is In your view, is there more that they could be doing? Is there more that the CRTC could be doing? I think the CRTC is doing good work. Obviously, I'd like them to get it done faster, but you know, regulation's not always fast. So it'd be great to move quicker, but uh, I respect what they're doing. So I'm, I'm not so sure I have much advice there. What I would say, though, is for the government, you know, in the last federal election, they made clear that wireless and wireline broadband pricing needed to come down. They promised that they would address it. Yet, from last year until now, from last summer until now, it seems almost like they flinched or maybe they became less sure about that. So I would hope that they make clear to Canadians and to all who are listening that competition is critical. And they state very clearly that you know this phrase, protecting investment, actually is protecting investor returns. And we all know that that just means leaving high prices in place. So they need to they need to make that clear. They need to make their stance on this clear for all Canadians. And then finally, I would hope that they immediately shut down or shut out the incumbent delay tactics that we continue to suffer with every day. Okay. So, so more that can be done on the ground, more that can be done uh, at a policy level. And as we've heard uh, from both Mary and Madeline, much more that can be done strategically within communities and at the federal level. Uh, it's it's in some ways discouraging to think that uh, broadband task force dates back in Canada two decades now. So this has been a, literally a discussion for two decades in terms of how to ensure that everyone has affordable uh, high-speed internet access. But sounds like on the one hand, this discussion is going to continue, but it, I'm grateful to all of you for coming on the podcast both to share your experiences, and but I think also just as importantly, some of the kinds of solutions that uh, that are open and available to policymakers, regulators, and people within their local communities. 
So Madeline, Mary, and, and Matt, um, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at LawBitesPod or Michael Geist at MGeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening and see you next time. <music>